Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town, the delightfully whimsical small town tale from Stephen Leacock. This is the 11th title in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town. Chapter 9. The Mariposa Bank Mystery. Suicide is a thing that ought not to be committed without very careful thought. It often involves serious consequences and, in some cases, brings pain to others than oneself. I don't say that there is no justification for it. There often is. Anybody who has listened to certain kinds of music, or read certain kinds of poetry, or heard certain kinds of performances upon the concertina, will admit that there are some lives which ought not to be continued, and that even suicide has its brighter aspects. But to commit suicide on grounds of love is at the very best a dubious experiment. I know that in this I am expressing an opinion contrary to that of most true lovers, who embrace suicide on the slightest provocation as the only honorable termination of an existence that never ought to have begun. I quite admit that there is a glamour and a sensation about the thing which has its charm, and that there is nothing like it for causing a girl to realize the value of the heart that she has broken and which breathed forgiveness upon her at the very moment when it held in its hand the half-pint of prussic acid that was to terminate its beating forever. But apart from the general merits of the question— I suppose there are few people, outside of lovers, who know what it is to commit suicide four times in five weeks. Yet this was what happened to Mr. Pupkin of the Exchange Bank of Mariposa. Ever since he had known Zena Pepperly, he had realized that his love for her was hopeless. She was too beautiful for him and too good for him. Her father hated him and her mother despised him. His salary was too small and his own people were too rich. If you add to all that, he came up to the judge's house one night and found a poet reciting verses to Zena, you will understand the suicide at once. It was one of those regular poets with a solemn jackass face and lank parted hair and eyes like puddles of molasses. I don't know how he came there, up from the city, probably. But there he was on the Pepperleys' veranda that August evening. He was reciting poetry, either Tennyson's or Shelley's or his own, he couldn't tell. And about him sat Zena with her hands clasped, and Nora Gallagher looking at the sky, and Jocelyn Drone gazing into infinity, and a little tubby woman looking at the poet with her head falling over sideways. In fact, there was a whole group of them. I don't know what it is about poets that draws women to them in that way. But everybody knows that a poet has only to sit and saw the air with his hands and recite verses in a deep, stupid voice, and all the women are crazy over him. Men despise him and would kick him off the veranda if they dared, but the women simply rave over him. So, Pupkin sat there in the gloom and listened to this poet reciting Browning, and he realized that everybody understood it but him. 
He could see Zena with her eyes fixed on the poet, as if she were hanging on to every syllable. She was. She needed to. And he stood it just about fifteen minutes, and then slid off the side of the veranda and disappeared without even saying good night. He walked straight down Oneida Street and along the main street, just as hard as he could go. There was only one purpose in his mind. Suicide. He was heading straight for Jim Elliott's drugstore on the main corner, and his idea was to buy a drink of chloroform and drink it and die right there on the spot. As Pupkin walked down the street, the whole thing was so vivid in his mind that he could picture it to the remotest detail. He could even see it all in type, in big headings in the newspapers of the following day. Appalling suicide. Peter Pupkin poisoned. He perhaps hoped that the thing might lead to some kind of public enquiry, and that the question of Browning's poetry, and whether it is altogether fair to allow of its general circulation, would be fully ventilated in the newspapers. Thinking of that, Pupkin came to the main corner. On a warm August evening, the drugstore of Mariposa, as you know, is all a blaze of lights. You can hear the hissing of the soda water fountain half a block away, and inside the store there are ever so many people, boys and girls and old people too, all drinking sarsaparilla and chocolate sundaes and lemon sours and foaming drinks that you take out of long straws. There is such a laughing and a talking as you never heard, and the girls are all in white and pink and Cambridge blue, and the soda fountain is of white marble with silver taps, and it hisses and sputters, and Jim Elliot and his assistant wear white coats with red geraniums in them, and it's just as gay as gay. The foyer of the opera in Paris may be a fine sight, but I doubt if it can compare with the inside of Elliot's drugstore in Mariposa for real gaiety and joy of living. This night, the store was especially crowded because it was a Saturday, and that meant early closing for all the hotels, except, of course, Smith's. So as the hotels were shut, the people were all in the drugstore, drinking like fishes. It just shows the folly of local option and the temperance movement and all that. Why, if you shut the hotels, you simply drive the people to the soda fountains, and there's more drinking than ever, and not only of the men, too, but the girls and young boys and children. I've seen little things of eight and nine that had to be lifted up on the high stools at Elliot's drugstore, drinking great goblets of lemon soda, enough to burst them, brought there by their own fathers. And why? Simply because the hotel bars were shut. What's the use of thinking you can stop people drinking merely by cutting off whiskey and brandy? The only effect is to drive them to taking lemon sour and sarsaparilla and cherry pectoral and carica cordial and things they wouldn't have touched before. So, in the long run, they drink more than ever. The point is that you can't prevent people having a good time no matter how hard you try. If they can't have it with lager beer and brandy, they'll have it with plain soda and lemon pop. And so the whole gloomy scheme of the temperance people breaks down anyway. But I was only saying that Elliot's Drugstore in Mariposa on a Saturday night is the gayest and brightest spot in the world. And just imagine, what a fool of a place to commit suicide in! 
Just imagine going up to the soda water fountain and asking for five cents worth of chloroform and soda. Well, you simply can't. That's all. That's the way Pupkin found it. You see, as soon as he came in, somebody called out, Hello, Pete! And one or two others called, Hello, Pup! And some said, How goes it? And others, How are you toughing it? And so on. Because, you see, they had all been drinking more or less, and naturally they felt jolly and glad-hearted. So, the upshot of it was that instead of taking chloroform, Pupkin stepped up to the counter of the fountain, and he had a bromo-seltzer with cherry soda. And after that, he had one of those aerated seltzers, and then a couple of lemon seltzers, and a bromo-fizzer. I don't know if you know the mental effect of a bromo-seltzer but it's hardly a thing to commit suicide on. You can't. You feel so buoyant. Anyway, what with the fizzing of the seltzer and the lights and the girls, Pupkin began to feel so fine that he didn't care a suss for all the browning in the world. And as for the poet, oh, to blazes with him. What's poetry, anyway? Only rhymes. So, would you believe it? In about ten minutes, Peter Pupkin was off again and heading straight for the Pepperleys' house, poet or no poet, and what was more to the point, he carried with him three great bricks of Elliot's ice cream in green, pink, and brown layers. He struck the veranda just at the moment when Browning was getting too stale and dreary for words. His brain was all sizzling and jolly with the broma seltzer, and when he fetched out the ice cream bricks, and Zena ran to get plates and spoons to eat it with, and Pupkin went with her to help fetch them, and they picked out the spoons together. They were so laughing and happy that it was just a marvel. Girls, you know, need no broma seltzer. They're full of it all the time. And as for the poet, well... Can you imagine how Pupkin felt when Zena told him that the poet was married and that the tubby little woman with her head on sideways was his wife? So they had the ice cream, and the poet ate it in bucketsful. Poets always do. They need it. And after it, the poet recited some stanzas of his own, and Pupkin saw that he had misjudged the man because it was dandy poetry, the very best. That night, Pupkin walked home on air, and there was no thought of chloroform, and it turned out that he hadn't committed suicide, but like all lovers, he had commuted it. I don't need to describe in full the later suicides of Mr. Pupkin, because they were all conducted on the same plan and rested on something the same reasons as above. Sometimes he would go down at night to the offices of the bank below his bedroom and bring up his bank revolver in order to make an end of himself with it. This, too, he could see headed up in the newspapers as Brilliant Boy Banker Blows Out His Brains. But blowing your brains out is a noisy, rackety performance, and Pupkin soon found that only special kinds of brains are suited for it. So he always sneaked back again later in the night and put the revolver in its place, deciding to drown himself instead. Yet, every time that he walked down to the trestle bridge over the Ossawepi, he found it was quite unsuitable for drowning, too high, and the water too swift and black, and the rushes too gruesome. In fact, not at all the kind of place for a drowning. Far better, he realized, to wait there on the railroad track and throw himself under the wheels of the express and be done with it.
Yet, though Pupkin often waited in this way for the train, he was never able to pick out a pair of wheels that suited him. Anyhow, it's awfully hard to tell an express from a fast freight. I wouldn't mention these attempts at suicide if one of them hadn't finally culminated in making Peter Pupkin a hero and solving for him the whole perplexed entanglement of his love affair with Zena Pepperley. Incidentally, it threw him into the very center of one of the most impenetrable bank mysteries that ever baffled the ingenuity of some of the finest legal talent that ever adorned one of the most enterprising communities in the country. It happened one night, as I say, that Pupkin decided to go down into the office of the bank and get his revolver and see if it would blow his brains out. It was the night of the fireman's ball, and Zena had danced four times with a visitor from the city, a man who was in the fourth year at the university and who knew everything. It was more than Peter Pupkin could bear. Mallory Tompkins was away that night, and when Pupkin came home, he was all alone in the building, except for Gillis, the caretaker, who lived in the extension at the back. He sat in his room for hours, brooding. Two or three times, he picked up a book. He remembered afterwards distinctly that it was Kant's critique of pure reason and tried to read it, but it seemed meaningless and trivial. Then, with a sudden access of resolution, he started from his chair and made his way down the stairs and into the office room of the bank, meaning to get a revolver and kill himself on the spot and let them find his body lying on the floor. It was then far on in the night, and the empty building of the bank was as still as death. Pupkin could hear the stairs creak under his feet, and as he went, he thought he heard another sound, like the opening or closing of a door. But it sounded not like the sharp, ordinary noise of a closing door, but with a dull, muffled noise, as if someone had shut the iron door of a safe in a room under the ground. For a moment, Pupkin stood and listened, with his heart thumping against his ribs. Then he kicked his slippers from his feet and, without a sound, stole into the office on the ground floor and took the revolver from his teller's desk. As he gripped it, he listened to the sounds on the back stairway and in the vaults below. I should explain that in the exchange bank of Mariposa, the offices were on the ground floor level with the street. Below this is another floor with low, dark rooms paved with flagstones with unused office desks and with piles of paper stored in boxes. On this floor are the vaults of the bank, and lying in them in the autumn, the grain season, there is anything from fifty to a hundred thousand dollars in currency tied in bundles. There is no other light down there than the dim reflection from the lights out on the street, and lies in patches on the stone floor. I think, as Peter Pupkin stood, revolver in hand, in the office of the bank, he had forgotten all about the maudlin purpose of his first coming. He had forgotten for the moment all about heroes and love affairs, and his whole mind was focused, sharp and alert, with the intensity of the nighttime, on the sounds that he heard in the vault and on the back stairway of the bank. Straight away, Pupkin knew what it meant as plainly as if it were written in print. 
He had forgotten, I say, about being a hero, and he only knew that there was $60,000 in the vault of the bank below, and that he was paid $800 a year to look after it. As Peter Pupkin stood there, listening to the sounds in his stalking feet, his face showed gray as ashes in the light that fell through the window from the street. His heart beat like a hammer against his ribs. But behind its beatings was the blood of four generations of loyalists, and the robber, who would take that $60,000 from the Mariposa Bank, must take it over the dead body of Peter Pupkin, teller. Pupkin walked down the stairs to the lower room, the one below the ground with the bank vault in it, with as fine a step as any of his ancestors showed on parade. And if he had known it, as he came down the stairway in front of the vault room, there was a man crouched in the shadow of the passageway by the stairs at the back. This man, too, held a revolver in his hand, and, criminal or not, his face was as resolute as Pupkin's own. As he heard the teller's step on the stair, he turned and waited in the shadow of the doorway without a sound. There is no need, really, to mention all these details. They are only of interest as showing how sometimes a bank teller in a corded smoking jacket and stocking feet may be turned into such a hero as even the Mariposa girls might dream about. All of this must have happened at about three o'clock in the night. This much was established afterwards from the evidence of Gillis, the caretaker. When he first heard the sounds, he had looked at his watch and noticed that it was half-past two. The watch he knew was three-quarters of an hour slow, three days before, and had been gaining since. The exact time at which Gillis heard footsteps in the bank and started downstairs, pistol in hand, became a nice point afterwards in the cross-examination. But one must not anticipate. Pupkin reached the iron door of the bank safe and knelt in front of it, feeling in the dark to find the fracture of the lock. As he knelt, he heard a sound behind him and swung round on his knees and saw the bank robber in the half-light of the passageway and the glitter of a pistol in his hand. The rest was over in an instant. Pupkin heard a voice that was his own, but that sounded strange and hollow call out, "'Drop that, or I'll fire!' And then, just as he raised his revolver, there came a blinding flash of light before his eyes, and Peter Pupkin, junior teller of the bank, fell forward on the floor, and you know more. At that point, of course, I ought to close down a chapter, or volume, or at least strike the reader over the head with a sandbag to force him to stop and think. In common fairness, one ought to stop here and count a hundred, or get up and walk around a block, or, at any rate, picture to oneself Peter Pupkin lying on the floor of the bank, motionless, his arms distended, the revolver still grasped in his hand. But I must go on. By half-past seven on the following morning, it was known all over Mariposa that Peter Pupkin, the junior teller of the exchange, had been shot dead by a bank robber in the vault of the building. It was known also that Gillis, the caretaker, had been shot and killed at the foot of the stairs, and that the robber had made off with $50,000 in currency, and that he had left a trail of blood on the sidewalk, and that the men were out tracking him with bloodhounds in the great swamps to the north of the town. This, I say, 
and it is important to note it, was what they knew at half-past seven. Of course, as each hour went past, they learned more and more. At eight o'clock, it was known that Pupkin was not dead, but dangerously wounded in the lungs. At 8.30, it was known that he was not shot in the lungs, but that the ball had traversed the pit of his stomach. At nine o'clock, it was learned that the pit of Pupkin's stomach was all right, but that the bullet had struck his right ear and carried it away. Finally, it was learned that his ear had not exactly been carried away, that is, not precisely removed by the bullet, but that it had grazed Pupkin's head in such a way that it had stunned him, and if it had been an inch or two more to the left, it might have reached his brain. This, of course, was just as good as being killed from the point of view of public interest. Indeed, by nine o'clock, Pupkin could see himself on the main street with a great bandaged sideways on his head, pointing out the traces of the robber. Gillis, the caretaker, too, it was known by eight, had not been killed. He had been shot through the brain, but whether the injury was serious or not was only a matter of conjecture. In fact, by ten o'clock, it was understood that the bullet from the robber's second shot had grazed the side of the caretaker's head, but as far as could be known, his brain was just as before. I should add that the first report about the bloodstains and the swamp and the bloodhounds turned out to be inaccurate. The stains may have been blood, but as they led to the cellar way of Netley's store, they may also have been molasses, though it was argued, to be sure, that the robber might well have poured molasses over the bloodstains from sheer cunning. It was remembered, too, that there were no bloodhounds in Mariposa although, mind you, there are any amount of dogs there. So, you see that by ten o'clock in the morning, the whole affair was settling into the impenetrable mystery which it ever since remained. Not that there wasn't evidence enough. There was Pupkin's own story, and Gillis's story, and the stories of all the people who had heard the shots and seen the robber. Some said the bunch of robbers go running past— Others said, walking past, in the night. Apparently, the robber ran up and down half the streets of Mariposa before he vanished. But the stories of Pupkin and Gillis were plain enough. Pupkin related that he heard sounds in the bank and came downstairs just in time to see the robber crouching in the passageway, and that the robber was a large, hulking, villainous-looking man wearing a heavy coat. Gillis told exactly the same story, having heard the noises at the same time, except that he first described the robber as a small, thin fellow, peculiarly villainous-looking, however, even in the dark, wearing a short jacket. But on thinking it over, Gillis realized that he had been wrong about the size of the criminal, and that he was even bigger, if anything, than what Mr. Pumpkin thought. Gillis had fired at the robber just at the same moment had Mr. Pupkin. Beyond that, all was mystery, absolute and impenetrable. By eleven o'clock, the detectives had come up from the city under orders from the head of the bank. I wish you could have seen the two detectives as they moved to and fro in Mariposa. Fine-looking, stern, impenetrable men that they were. They seemed to take in the whole town by instinct and so quietly. 
They found their way to Mr. Smith's hotel just as quietly as if it wasn't designed at all and stood there at the bar, picking up scraps of conversation. You know, the way detectives do it. Occasionally, they allowed one or two bystanders, Confederates perhaps, to buy a drink for them. And you can see from the way they drank it that they were still listening for a clue. If there had been the faintest clue in Smith's Hotel, or in the Mariposa House, or in the Continental, those fellows would have been at it like a flush. To see them moving round the town that day, silent, massive, imperturbable, gave one a great idea of their strange, dangerous calling. They went about the town all day, and yet in such a quiet, peculiar way that you couldn't have realized that they were working at all. They ate their dinner together at Smith's Café and took an hour and a half over it to throw people off the scent. Then, when they got them off it, they sat and talked with Josh Smith in the back bar to keep them off. Mr. Smith seemed to take to them right away. They were men of his own size— or near it, and anyway, hotel men and detectives have a general affinity and share in the same impenetrable silence and in their confidential knowledge of the weaknesses of the public. Mr. Smith, too, was of great use to the detectives. Boys, he said, I wouldn't ask too close as to what folks was out late at night in this town. It don't do... <laughs> When these two great brains finally left for the city on the 5.30, it was hard to realize that behind each grand, impassable fakes, a perfect vortex of clues was seething. But if the detectives were heroes, what was Pupkin? Imagine him with his bandage on his head, standing in front of the bank, and talking of the midnight robbery with that peculiar false modesty that only heroes are entitled to use. I don't know whether you have ever been a hero, but for sheer exhilaration, there's nothing like it. And for Mr. Pupkin, who had gone through life thinking himself no good, to be suddenly exalted into the class of Napoleon Bonaparte and John Maynard and the charge of the Light Brigade. Oh, 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 it was wonderful, because Pupkin was a brave man now, and he knew it, and acquired with it all the brave man's modesty. In fact, I believe he was heard to say that he had only done his duty and that what he did was what any other man would have done. Though when somebody else said, That's so, when you come to think of it, Pupkin turned on him that quiet look of the wounded hero, bitterer than words. And if Pupkin had known that all of the afternoon papers in the city reported him dead, he would have felt more luxurious still. That afternoon, the Mariposa court sat in inquiry. Technically, it was summoned in inquest on the dead robber, though they hadn't found the body, and it was wonderful to see them lining up the witnesses and holding cross-examinations. There is something in the cross-examination of great criminal lawyers like Nivens of Mariposa, and in the counter-examinations of presiding judges like Pepperly that thrills you to the core with the astuteness of it. They had Henry Mullins, the manager, on the stand for an hour and a half, and the excitement was so breathless that you could have heard a pin drop. Nivens took him on first. "'What is your name?' he said. "'Henry August Mullins.' 
What position do you hold? I am manager of the Exchange Bank. When were you born? December 30th, 1869. After that, Niven stood looking quietly at Mullins. You can feel that he was thinking pretty deeply before he shot the next question at him. Where did you go to school? Mullins answered straight off. The high school down home. And Nivens thought again for a while and then asked, How many boys were at the school? About sixty. How many masters? About three. After that, Nivens paused a long while and seemed to be digesting the evidence, but at last an idea seemed to strike him, and he said, I understand you were not on the bank premises last night. Where were you? Down the lake, duck shooting. You should have seen the excitement in the court when Mullen said this. The judge leaned forward in his chair and broke in at once. Did you get any, Henry? He asked. Yes, Mullen said. About six. Where did you get them? What? In the wild rice marsh past the river? You don't say so. Did he get them on the sit or how? All of these questions were fired off at the witness from the court in a single breath. In fact, it was the knowledge that the first ducks of the season had been seen in the Ossawippi March that led to the termination of the proceedings before the afternoon was a quarter over. Mullins and George Duff and half the witnesses were off with shotguns as soon as the court was cleared. I may as well state at once that the full story of the robbery of the Bank of Mariposa never came to the light. A number of arrests, mostly of vagrants and suspicious characters, were made, but the guilt of the robbery was never brought home to them. One man was arrested twenty miles away at the other end of Missinaba County, who not only corresponded exactly with the description of the robber, but in addition to this had a wooden leg. Vagrants with one leg are always regarded with suspicion in places like Mariposa, and whenever a robbery or a murder happens, they are arrested in batches. It was never even known just how much money was stolen from the bank. Some people said $10,000, others more. The bank, no doubt, for business motives, claimed that the contents of the safe were intact and that the robber had been foiled in his design. But none of this matters to the exaltation of Mr. Pupkin. Good fortune, like bad, never comes in small installments. On that wonderful day, every good thing happened to Peter Pupkin at once. The morning saw him a hero. At the sitting of the court, the judge publicly told him that his conduct was fit to rank among the annals of the pioneers of Tecumseh Township and asked him to his house for supper. At five o'clock, he received the telegram of promotion from the head office that raised his salary to a thousand dollars and made him not only a hero, but a marriageable man. At six o'clock, he started up to the judge's house with his resolution nerved to the most momentous step of his life. His mind was made up. He would do a thing seldom, if ever, done in Mariposa. He would propose to Zena Pepperley. In Mariposa, this kind of step, I say, is seldom taken. The course of love runs on and on through all its stages of tennis playing and dancing and sleigh riding, till by sheer notoriety of circumstance an understanding is reached. 
To propose straight out would be thought priggish and affected and is supposed to belong only to people in books. But Pupkin felt that what ordinary people dare not do, heroes are allowed to attempt. He would propose to Zena, and more than that, he would tell her in a straight, manly way that he was rich and take the consequences. And he did it. That night, on the piazza, where the hammock hangs in the shadow of the Virginia creeper, he did it. By sheer good luck, the judge had gone indoors to the library, and by a piece of rare good fortune, Mrs. Pepperly had gone indoors to the sewing room, and by a happy trick of coincidence, the servant was out and the dog was tied up. In fact, no such chain of circumstances was ever offered in favor of mortal man before. What Zena said, beyond saying yes, I do not know. I am sure that when Pupkin told her of the money, she bore up as bravely as so fine a girl as Zena would. And when he spoke of diamonds, she said she would wear them for his sake. They were saying these things, and other things, ever so many other things, when there was such a roar and a clatter up on Ida Street as you never heard, and there came bounding up to the house one of the most marvellous limousine touring cars that ever drew up at the house of a judge on a modest salary of $3,000. When it stopped, there sprang from it an excited man in a long sealskin coat, were not for the luxury of it at all, but from the sheer chilliness of the autumn evening. And it was as of course you know, Pupkin's father. He had seen the news of his son's death in the evening papers in the city. They drove the car through, so the chauffeur said, in two hours and a quarter, and behind them there was to follow a special trainload of detectives, an emergency man. But Pupkin Sr. had cancelled all that by telegram halfway up when he heard that Peter was still living. For a moment, as his eye rested on young Pupkin, you would almost have imagined, had you not known that he came from the maritime provinces, that there were tears in them, and that he was about to hug his son to his heart. But if he didn't hug Peter to his heart, he certainly did within a few moments clasp Zena to it, in that fine, fatherly way in which they clasp pretty girls in the maritime provinces." The strangest thing is that Pupkin Sr. seemed to understand the whole situation without any explanations at all. Judge Pepperly, I think, would have shaken both of Pupkin Sr.'s arms off when he saw him, and when you heard them call one another Ned and Philip, it made you feel that they were boys again, attending classes together at the old law school in the city. If Pupkin thought that his father wouldn't make a hit in Mariposa, it only showed his ignorance. Pupkin Sr. sat there on the judge's veranda, smoking a corncob pipe as if he had never heard of Havana cigars in his life. In the three days that he spent in Mariposa that autumn, he went in and out of Jeff Thorpe's barbershop and Elliot's drugstore, shot black ducks in the marsh, and played poker every evening at a hundred matches for a cent, as if he had never lived any other life in all his days. They had to send him telegrams enough to fill a satchel to make him come away. So Pupkin and Zena, in due course of time, were married and went to live in one of the enchanted houses on the hillside in the newer part of the town, 
where you may find them to this day. You may see Pupkin there at any time, cutting enchanted grass on a little lawn in as gaudy a blazer as ever. But if you step up to speak to him or walk with him into the enchanted house, pre-modulate your voice, a little musical though it is, for there is said to be an enchanted baby on the premises, whose sleep must not lightly be disturbed. Chapter 10 The Great Election in Missanaba County Don't ask me what election it was, whether dominion or provincial or imperial or universal, for I scarcely know. It must, of course, have been going on in other parts of the country as well, but I saw it all from the Missanaba County, which, with the town of Mariposa, was, of course, the storm center and focus point of the whole turmoil. I only know that it was a huge election, and that on it turned issues of the most tremendous importance, such as whether or not Mariposa should become part of the United States, and whether the flag that had waved over the schoolhouse at Tecumseh Township for ten centuries should be trampled under the hoof of an alien invader, and whether Britons should be slaves. And, well, let me begin at the beginning. Everybody in Mariposa is either a liberal or a conservative, or else is both. Some of the people are, or have been, liberals or conservatives all their lives and are called dyed-in-the-wool grits or old-time Tories and things of that sort. These people get, from long training, such a swift, penetrating insight into national issues that they can decide the most complicated question in four seconds. In fact, just as soon as they grab the city papers out of the morning mail, they know the whole solution of any problem you can put to them. There are other people whose aim it is to be broad-minded and judicious and who vote liberal or conservative according to their judgment of the questions of the day. If their judgment of these questions tells them that there is something in it for them in voting liberal, then they do so. But if not, they refuse to be the slaves of a party or the henchmen of any political leader so that anybody looking for henches has got to keep away from them. But the one thing that nobody is allowed to do in Mariposa is to have no politics. Of course, there are always some people whose circumstances compel them to say that they have no politics, but that is easily understood. Take the case of Trelawney, the postmaster. Long ago, he was a letter carrier under the old Mackenzie government, and later he was a letter sorter under the old MacDonald government, and after that a letter stamper under the old Tupper government, and so on. Trelawney always says that he has no politics, but the truth is that he has too many. So, too, with the clergy in Mariposa. They have no politics, absolutely none, none, yet Dean Drone, round election time, always announces as his text such a verse as, Lo, is there not one righteous man in Israel? Or, What ho, is it not time for a change? And that is a signal for all the liberal businessmen to get up and leave their pews. Similarly, over at the Presbyterian Church, the minister says that his sacred calling will not allow him to take part in politics, and that his sacred calling prevents him from breathing even a word of harshness against his fellow man. But 
that when it comes to the elevation of the ungodly into high places in the Commonwealth, this means, of course, the nomination of the conservative candidate, then he's not going to allow his sacred calling to prevent him from saying just what he thinks of it. And by that time, having pretty well cleared the church of conservatives, he proceeds to show from the scriptures that the ancient Hebrews were liberals to a man, except those who were drowned in the flood, or who perished, more or less deservedly, in the desert. There are, I say, some people who are allowed to claim to have no politics, the office holders, and the clergy, and the school teachers, and the hotel keepers. But beyond them, anybody in Mariposa who says that he has no politics is looked upon as crooked, and people wonder what it is that he is out after. In fact, the whole town and county is a hive of politics, and people who have only witnessed gatherings such as the House of Commons at Westminster and the Senate at Washington and never seen a conservative convention at Tecumseh Corners or a liberal rally at the concession schoolhouse <laughs> doesn't know what politics means. So, you may imagine the excitement in Mariposa when it became known that King George had dissolved the Parliament of Canada and had sent out a writ or command for Missinaba County to elect for him some other person than John Henry Bagshaw, because he no longer had confidence in him. The king, of course, is very well known, very favorably known in Mariposa. Everybody remembers how he visited the town on his great tour in Canada and stopped off at the Mariposa station. Although he was only a prince at the time, there was quite a big crowd down at the depot, and everybody felt what a shame it was that the prince had no time to see more of Mariposa, because he would get such a false idea of it, seeing only the station and the lumberyards. Still, they all came to the station— and all the liberals and conservatives mixed together perfectly freely and stood side by side without any distinction so that the prince should not observe any party differences among them. And he didn't. You could see that he didn't. They read him an address all about the tranquility and loyalty of the empire, and they purposely left out any reference to the trouble over the town wharf, over the big row there had been about the location of the new post office. <laughs> there was a general decent feeling that it wouldn't be fair to disturb the prince with these things. Later on, as king, he would of course have to know all about them. But meanwhile, it was better to leave him with the idea that his empire was tranquil. So they deliberately couched the address in terms that were just as reassuring as possible, and the prince was simply delighted with it. I am certain that he slept pretty soundly after hearing that address. Why, you could see it taking effect even on his aide-de-camp and the people round him. So imagine how the prince must have felt. I think in Mariposa... They understand kings perfectly. Every time that a king or a prince comes, they try to make him see the bright side of everything and let him think that they're all united. Judge Pepperley walked up and down, arm in arm with Dr. Gallagher, the worst grit in the town, just to make the prince feel fine. So, when they got the news that the king had lost confidence in John Henry Bagshaw, the sitting member, they never questioned it a bit. Lost confidence? All right, they'd elect him another right away. 
They'd elect him half a dozen if he needed them. They don't mind. They'd elect the whole town, man after man, rather than have the king worried about it. In any case, all the conservatives had been wondering for years how the king and the governor-general and men like that had tolerated such a man as Bagshaw so long. Missanaba County, I say, is a regular hive of politics, and not the miserable, crooked, money-ridden politics of the cities, but the straight, real, old-fashioned thing that is an honor to the countryside. Any man who would offer to take a bribe or sell his convictions for money would be an object of scorn. I don't say they wouldn't take money. They would, of course. Why not? But if they did, they would take it in a straight, fearless way and say nothing about it. They might. It's only human. Accept a job or a contract from the government. But if they did... Rest assured it would be in a broad national spirit and not for the sake of the work itself. No, sir, not for a minute. Any man who wants to get the votes of the Missinaba farmers and the Mariposa businessmen has got to persuade them that he's the right man. If he can do that, if he can persuade any one of them that he is the right man and that all the rest know it, then they'll vote for him. The division, I repeat, between the liberals and the conservatives, is intense. Yet you might live for a long while in the town, between elections, and never know it. It is only when you get to understand the people that you begin to see that there is a cross-division running through them that nothing can ever remove. You gradually become aware of fine, subtle distinctions that miss your observation at first. Outwardly, they are all friendly enough. For instance, Joe Milligan, the dentist, is a conservative, and has been for six years. And yet, he shares the same boathouse with young Dr. Gallagher, who is a liberal, and they even bought a motorboat between them. Peter Glover and Alf McNichol were in partnership in the hardware and paint store, though they belonged on different sides. But just as soon as elections drew near... The differences in politics became perfectly apparent. Liberals and conservatives drew away from one another. Joe Milligan used the motorboat one Saturday and Dr. Gallagher the next, and Pete Glover sold hardware on one side of the store, and Alf McNichol sold paint on the other. You soon realized, too, that one of the newspapers was conservative and the other was liberal, and that there was a liberal drugstore and a conservative drugstore, and so on. Similarly, round election time, the Mariposa House was the Liberal Hotel, and the Continental Conservative, though Mr. Smith's place, where they always put on a couple of extra bartenders, was what you might call independent liberal conservative, with a dash of imperialism thrown in. Mr. Gingham, the undertaker, was, as a natural effect of his calling, an advanced liberal, but at election time, he always engaged a special assistant for embalming conservative customers. So now I think you understand something of the great political surroundings of the great election in Missanaba County. John Henry Bagshaw was the sitting member, the liberal member for Missanaba County. The liberals called him the old warhorse and the old battle-axe and the old charger and the old champion and all sorts of things of that kind. 
The conservatives called him the old jackass, and the old army mule, and the old booze fighter, and the old grafter, and the old scoundrel. John Henry Bagshaw was, I suppose, one of the greatest political forces in the world. He had flowing white air crowned with a fedora hat and a smooth, statesmanlike face which had cost the county twenty-five cents a day to shave. Altogether, the Dominion of Canada had spent over $2,000 in shaving that face during the twenty years that Bagshaw had represented Missinaba County. But the result had been well worth it. Bagshaw wore a long political overcoat that had cost the country 20 cents a day to brush, and boots that cost the Dominion 15 cents every morning to shine. But it was money well spent. Bagshaw of Mariposa was one of the most representative men of the age, and it's no wonder that he had been returned for the county for five elections running, leaving the Conservatives nowhere. Just think how representative he was. He owned 200 acres out on the third concession and kept two men working on it all the time to prove that he was a practical farmer. They sent in fat hogs to the Missinaba County Agricultural Exposition and the World's Fair every autumn, and Bagshaw himself stood beside the pig pens with the judges and wore a pair of corduroy breeches and chewed a straw all afternoon. After that, if any farmer thought that he was not properly represented in Parliament, it showed he was an ass. Bagshaw owned a half share in the harness business and a quarter share in the tannery, and that made him a businessman. He paid for a pew in the Presbyterian Church, and that represented religion in Parliament. He attended college for two sessions thirty years ago, and that represented education and kept him abreast with modern science, if not ahead of it. He kept a little account in one bank and a big account in the other, so that he was a rich man or a poor man at the same time. Add to that, John Henry Beckshaw was perhaps the finest orator in Mariposa. And that, of course, is saying a great deal. There are speakers there, lots of them, that can talk two or three hours at a stretch. But the old warhorse could beat them all. They say that when John Henry Bagshaw got well started, say after a couple of hours of talk, he could speak as Pericles or Demosthenes or Cicero never could have spoken. You could tell Bagshaw a hundred yards off as a member of the House of Commons. He wore a pepper-and-salt suit to show that he came from a rural constituency, and he wore a broad gold watch-chain with dangling seals to show that he also represents a town. You could see from his quiet, low collar and white tie that his electorate were a God-fearing, religious people, while the horseshoe pin that he wore showed that his electorate were not without sporting instincts and knew a horse from a jackass. Most of the time, John Henry Bagshaw had to be at Ottawa, though he preferred the quiet of his farm, and always left it, as he said, with a sigh. If he was not in Ottawa, he was in Washington, and of course, at any time, they might need him in London. So, that it was no wonder that he could only be in Mariposa about two months of the year. That is why everybody knew 
when Bagshaw got off the afternoon train one day early in the spring, that there must be something very important coming, and that the rumors about a new election must be perfectly true. Everything that he did showed this. He gave the baggage man twenty-five cents to take the check off his trunk, the bus driver fifty cents to drive him up to the main street, and he went into Callahan's tobacco store and bought two ten-cent cigars and took them across the street and gave them to Mallory Tompkins of the Times-Herald as a present from the Prime Minister. All that afternoon, Bagshaw went up and down the main street of Mariposa, and you can see, if you knew the signs of it, that there was politics in the air. He bought nails and putty and glass in the hardware store, and harness in the harness shop, and drugs in the drug store, and toys in the toy shop, and all the things like that that are needed for a big campaign. Then, when he had done all this, he went over with McGinnis, the liberal organizer, and Mallory Tompkins, the Times-Herald man, and Gingham, the great independent liberal undertaker, to the back parlor in the Mariposa house. You could tell from the way John Henry Bagshaw closed the door before he sat down that he was in a pretty serious frame of mind. Gentlemen, he said, the election is a certainty. We're going to have a big fight on our hands and we've got to get ready for it. Is it going to be on the tariff? asked Tompkins. Yes, gentlemen, I'm afraid it is. The whole thing is going to turn on the tariff question. Well, I wish it were otherwise. I think it madness. But they're bent on it, and we got to fight it on that line. Why they can't fight it merely on the question of graft, continued the old war horse, rising from his seat and walking up and down. Heaven only knows. I warn them. I appeal to them. I said, fight the thing on graft, and we can win easy. Take this constituency— why not have fought the thing out on whether I spent too much money on the town wharf or the post office? What better issues could a man want? Let them claim that I am crooked, and let me claim that I am not. Surely that was good enough without dragging in the tariff. But now, gentlemen, tell me about things in the constituency. Is there any talk yet of who is to run? Mallory Tompkins lighted up the second of his Prime Minister's cigars and then answered for the group. Everybody says that Edward Drone is going to run. Ah, said the old warhouse, and there was joy upon his face. Is he? At last. That's good, that's good. Now, what platform will he run on? Independent. Oh, excellent, said Mr. Bagshaw. Independent. Oh, mm, that's fine. On a program of what? Just simple honesty and public morality. Come now, said the member. That's splendid. That will help enormously. Honesty and public morality, the very thing. If Drone runs and makes a good showing, we win for a certainty. Tompkins, you must lose no time over this. Can't you manage to get some articles in other papers hinting that at the last election we bribed all the voters in the county and that we gave out enough contracts to simply pervert the whole constituency? Imply that we poured the public money into this county in buckets full and that we are bound to do it again. Let Drone have plenty of material of this sort and he'll draw off every honest, unbiased vote in the Conservative Party. 
My only fear is, continued the old warhorse, losing some of his animation, that drone won't run after all. He said it so often before, and never has. He hasn't got the money. But we must see to that. Gingham, you know his brother well. You must work it so that we pay Drone's deposit and his campaign expenses. But how like Drone it is to come out at this time. It was indeed very like Edward Drone to attempt so misguided a thing as to come out an independent candidate in Missanaba County on a platform of public honesty. It was just the sort of thing that anyone in Mariposa would expect from him. Edward Drone was the rural dean's younger brother. Young Mr. Drone, they used to call him, years ago, to distinguish him from the rector. He was a somewhat weaker copy of his elder brother, with a simple, inefficient face and kind blue eyes. Edward Drone was, and always had been, a failure. In training he had been, once upon a time, an engineer, and built dams that broke, and bridges that fell down, and wharves that floated away in the spring floods. He had been a manufacturer, and failed, had been a contractor, and failed, and now lived a meagre life as a sort of surveyor, or land expert on, well, goodness knows what. In his political ideas, Edward Drone was, and as everybody in Mariposa knew, always been crazy. He used to come up to the autumn exercises at the high school and make speeches about the ancient Romans and Titus Manlius and Quintus Curtius at the same time when John Henry Bagshaw used to make a speech about the Maple Leaf and ask for an extra half-holiday. Drone used to tell the boys about the lessons to be learned from the lives of the truly great, and Bagshaw used to talk to them about the lessons learned from the lives of the extremely rich. Drone used to say that his heart filled whenever he thought of that splendid patriotism of the ancient Romans, and Bagshaw said that whenever he looked out over this wide dominion, his heart overflowed. Even the youngest boy in the school could tell that Drone was foolish. Not even the school teachers would have voted for him. What about the conservatives? asked Bagshaw presently. Is there any talk yet as to who they'll bring out? Gingham and Mallory Tompkins looked at one another. They were almost afraid to speak. Haven't you heard? said Gingham. They've got their man already. Who is it? said Bagshaw quickly. They're going to put up Josh Smith. <gasps> Great heavens, said Bagshaw. "'jumping to his feet. "'Smith, the hotel keeper?' "'Yes, sir,' said Mr. Gingham. "'That's the man.' "'Do you remember in history "'how Napoleon turned pale "'when he heard that the Duke of Wellington "'was to lead the Allies in Belgium? "'Do you remember how when Themistocles "'heard that Aristogiton was to lead the Spartans, "'he jumped into the sea?' Probably you don't, but it may help you to form some idea of what John Henry Bagshaw felt when he heard that the Conservatives had selected Josh Smith, proprietor of Smith's Hotel. Well, you remember Smith. You've seen him there on the steps of his hotel, 280 pounds in his stocking feet. You've seen him selling liquor after hours through sheer public spirit. And you recall how he saved the lives of hundreds of people on the day when the steamer sank. And how he saved the town from being destroyed the night when the Church of England Church burnt down. You knew that hotel of his, too, halfway down the street. 
Smith's Northern Health Resort, though already they were beginning to call it Smith's British Arms. So you can imagine that Bagshaw came as near to turning pale as a man in federal politics can. I never knew Smith was a conservative, he said faintly. He always subscribed to our fund. He is now, said Mr. Gingham ominously. He says the idea of this reciprocity business cuts him to the heart. The infernal liar, said Mr. Bagshaw. There was silence for a few moments. Then Bagshaw spoke again. Will Smith have anything else in his platform beside the trade question? Yes, said Mr. Gingham gloomily. He will. What is it? Temperance and total prohibition. John Henry Bagshaw sank back in his chair as if struck with a club. There, let me leave him for a chapter. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Snymer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include The Scarlet Pimpernel, Vanity Fair, Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.